Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Econ Weekly podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew Young, and uh, and I'm joined this week, as always, uh, by the publisher of Econ Weekly, Jay Shabbat. Hello, Jay. Hi, Andrew. How are you today? I'm I'm doing well today. Thank you. Um, I uh, had a had a good week this week. It's been been an interesting one, I guess, in in the markets. Interesting one for news as well around around the economy. Um, just kind of been through uh, this week's edition of Econ Weekly, so number of talking points uh, to go through today. Um, I think um, we'll probably start off with uh, with Mr. Powell. Um, we uh, we got some interesting kind of insights uh, into the way the, the, the Fed is thinking and uh, some interesting, I think, reactions um, as a result of that. So maybe let's kind of kick off with the, I guess, the big macro uh, that's happening at the moment. Yeah, as always. And, and just uh, for your information, we are recording this uh, on Friday morning. March 25th. Uh, we usually record on Saturdays, but uh, a little bit early this week. So just FYI for context. Okay, so now the macroeconomic, the, the latest and greatest. Well, you mentioned Mr. Powell. So, so Jay Powell, who's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, oh, two weeks ago gave, uh, or I guess it would be last week, um, gave a, uh, you know, get gave his big press conference where he announced that he was, uh, for the first time since 2018, the Fed was going to uh, raise interest rates. So it marked a big inflection point uh, for, you know, ever really since the pandemic started in early 2020, the Fed had a very, what you might call easy money policy, uh, very stimulative, um, buying bonds to introduce more money into the economy and uh, reduce lending rates. Um, and now that policy is kind of shifted and it's in the process of shifting kind of rather fast and aggressively because of all this inflation that we're having that the Fed kind of, depending on who you talk to, some say it was, you know, just a big, <laughs> a big error um, on their point to not have recognized it sooner. Um, a more charitable view is that it was just very difficult, you know, to predict a lot of the things that happened with, you know, the various waves of COVID, et cetera. Um, well, and yeah, and, and and just on that point, Jay. I mean, yeah, I know there was a lot of kind of points about say, hey, listen, inflation is raging, and this is like a quarter of a point rise, and it was, you know, it was kind of telegraphed over a long period of time. But I mean, when was the last time we had a rate rise? I mean, there's <laughs> kind of there's reason for kid gloves to be to be applied here. Right, right, and so yeah, so Powell um, uh, gave a speech on Monday. I think it was yeah it was Monday or Tuesday I believe it was Monday at uh, at a big convention um, National Association of Business Economics um, in Washington or, and they uh, and and he basically sounded very hawkish that was kind of the takeaway um, he was at one point asked point blank you know what would prevent you from raising uh, interest rates by a half point rather than a quarter point which would you know be pretty rather aggressive. And his simple answer was nothing, <laughs> nothing would prevent him. So that, that kind of moved markets. I think there's a sense now that the Fed is, is really serious about trying to tackle inflation through uh, a tighter monetary, monetary uh, policy. Um, their position is that, you know, we're in the process of, you know, getting it back to what they call neutral, the neutral rate, 
Um, and then he even said that we're willing to go beyond that to, to where we're, we're not just, uh, you know, going to neutral, but we're, we're getting restrictive. We're actually, you know, restricting access to access to money or making money more expensive. Um, so that's, that's where we stand. Uh, of course, as we've, you know, spoke about in previous uh, episodes, the, there's no guarantee that uh, monetary policy can actually do the job here. I mean, in the very textbook traditional kind of definition, uh, inflation is, is a monetary phenomenon. And, you know, you kind of, in, you raise interest rates and therefore you, uh, you know, theoretically reduce bank lending, which in turn means less money in the economy, uh, which should fight inflation. But in this, cl- in this case, again, going back to what we've spoken about before, uh, it's questionable whether that can really do the job because a lot of the inflation is linked to really two things. One is, uh, you know, there's just this demand for specific things like tangible, durable goods um, mm-hmm. has just gone through the roof during the pandemic and continues to be very strong. And then, of course, the supply chain bottlenecks that we've all been talking about. I mean, there's we, we really are. If, there, if there's one like I'd have to say, if there's if there's one way to describe the economy over the last two years, it's we're, we're in like a supply shortage economy. Like uh, we don't have enough of anything. There's there's not yes. enough workers. There's not enough semiconductor chips to build cars. There's not enough port capacity. There's not enough this. There's not enough that. Um, and that that's kind of the defining feature, I think, of the economy of the past two years. And well, can monetary policy, you know, address that? Not really. And Powell admits as much. I mean, he you know he says monetary policy is a blunt tool and can really only affect demand and not supply. Um, so that's, you know, that's where we are and what we'll see, you know, how effective, um, and sorry to drone on here, but my final point about all this <laughs> is that we, we never know this, all of this could reverse rather quickly because, uh, we may, you know, as people are talking about a recession and, yeah. and, you know, you can watch Bloomberg television or, you know, listen, listen to 10 different experts and five will tell you that, you know, there's no way possibly a recession could come because, you know, the consumer is so strong and business is so profitable. And the other five will tell you that, oh, yeah, 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 there's recessions inevitable <laughs> because, uh, you know, oil prices are going to kill the consumer and stuff. So super, super high level of uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of one of the, I guess, the delights or curiosities of economics is, you know, it's um, it's not empirical. There are there are so many of those variables that affect things. Um, just the, your your comment about the supply kind of crunch that we have. It, it, it's almost like the United States is under an embargo, uh, which is restricting yeah. things coming in. But yeah, so I mean, it, it will be interesting to see. I think, and as a result, all of the indicators that come out, you know, the latest reports and um the the daily kind of movements with the markets commodity prices they seem to have now an outsized uh, importance um because people are just looking forever for clues in terms of which way things are going um i mean and we don't know is j power could be overreaching or he could be underreaching and um i guess the point is it's how deft of hand he is in terms of reacting once it's clear which way things are going. I mean, um, you mentioned about recession. 
I mean, this is the other bizarre thing about this supply constraint because it's it's with labor as well. I mean, um, unemployment, you know, is one of those really cruel elements of uh, of an economy in, in trouble. And, and, and we actually have the opposite effect here. Right, right. One of the things he, he actually, uh, Powell actually said in the speech regarding employment, the labor market, is very interesting, is that if you add the number of people working right now, plus the number of open jobs, that number is actually far larger than it was pre-pandemic. So it's, it's true that the actual number of workers um, is, is smaller. Um, the labor force was larger pre-pandemic. But if you add all the open number of jobs, it becomes larger, which just tells you there's something going on here. And, and, and it's, you know, why aren't people filling those jobs? And there's all sorts of theories about, I think Powell estimates of the Fed, um, about half of, of those open, of those kind of missing workers are just people who retired early. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the other half it's, it's, who knows, you know, labor force participation is down for whatever variety of reasons, you know, it still could be pandemic related and, and uh, you know, and whatnot. So, uh, but, but it is, I mean, the job market, the jobs are there. It's, it's a, just a really, really, really strong job market. Yes. I, and, you know, and, and personally, this kind of this retirement early wave that, that, that we had, it, it also makes me wonder if the, the pandemic itself and this initial uncertainty and then obviously this kind of a lot of uh, financial support that kind of flooded into, you know, people's pocketbooks kind of changed some of the dynamics about how people looked at their, their finances and their future. Um, and whether we had a bit of a revolution um, in terms of how people view, you know, work, work-life balance and their lives, um, almost like a little bit of a re restart. I guess time will tell if that is something that continues or, or we just revert back to, to where we were. Time will tell. It's still all playing out. And even with uh, the stock market and the real estate market being so strong uh, throughout the pandemic, that, as you mentioned, kind of, you know, fattened up people's wallets and uh, made, you know, if you're someone that was perhaps ready to retire in two or three years, maybe you said, ah, you know what, I've, I've got enough money to, to, to do this a little bit earlier than I planned. Um, so there was a lot of that. But now we have a situation where stock markets haven't been performing so well this year so far, and interest rates are going up, which kind of hurts bond investments. So, um, you know, for, for people who are investing in bonds, so that's uh, and it's and it's of course more more importantly is is um, is increasing um, the cost of buying a home because mortgage mm -hmm. rates are actually rising. Right, treasury rates at you know 20, 30 years out are are not rising terribly quickly, but uh, mortgage rates, thirty-year mortgage rates are um, they're well over four percent now. So that uh, you know kind of puts a damper on things. And that may change people's opinions about, you know, maybe, maybe I do need to work after all. Yes. And, and I, you know, and, and I saw a couple of references this week to some of the impacts there in terms of a bit of a generational divide. You know, the, the younger generation typically not going to be house owners yet. The, the, you know, it's getting further away in terms of when they can afford to do that. House is becoming more expensive. As you say, mortgage rates are going, going up. Um, and, um, you know, they probably getting less opportunities than probably generation above them um, uh, actually had at their age. And um, 
and again whether or not there's a there's a some form of correction going to be required there to to stop there being a, a gulf yeah and that again that also comes down to what we're talking about before with everything in the economy being in short supply there's just too few houses um and there's all sorts of reasons for that that we've you know written about and talked about econ weekly but uh, it's, that's, that's a big problem. I mean, it's, you're loving it right now. If you're, you know, if you're a homeowner, because the prices have gone through, you know, <laughs> through the roof, no pun intended, but, uh, if you're, uh, you know, prospective home buyer then, uh, or, or even renter, I mean, you just, you know, there's a lot of people who just simply can't find, find a home. Um, and one of the other things we mentioned, and we, we talk about in this, this new issue of econ weekly, that's coming out this weekend, um, is the, uh, the the fact that this sort of constrained uh, supply of houses, it really it really constrains the economy because you know typically what happens and this is a theme throughout American history is that Americans have always been very mobile. So you know the classic example is when all these factories in Detroit, or you know just using that it could be any Midwestern city, started closing in the you know seventies, eighties, nineties. You had a rush of people that moved to places like Las Vegas and, you know, Sunbelt places where there are a lot of jobs. And some of those jobs weren't, you know, they typically the jobs were better and better paid up, you know, in the factories. But, Mm -hmm. you know, if you got a job at a casino in Las Vegas, I mean, that's a unionized position. And, you know, some of those jobs are are, are rather well paid. Uh, And it, you know, the the Sunbelt kind of acted as sort of a safety valve for for the labor market. But what's happening now is that if you're in a place uh, that, you know, maybe there's not so many opportunities for you and you want to move to another city where there are, where there is a lot of job growth, you can't do it because you can't buy a house. So it's like, yeah, great. You know, it's, there's all these open jobs, like we talked about in, let's say, you know, a city like Orlando, but if you're a school teacher or a, you know, law enforcement officer, um, or, you know, government functionary, what you can, yeah, yeah, great. You can get it. You can get a good job and even, you know, solid income, solid salary, but, uh, yeah. Can you afford, you know, a a house that's half a million dollars? Yes, that's right. It's kind of, there there was, yes, I, I, I moved to the U S what, 10 years ago now. And, and, you know, kind of identified that I moved to Texas and, and here in the Southern States, people told me the, you know, cost of living certainly in terms of property is you'll notice how much more affordable it is and i think that that is changing um so yeah uh the mobility of the u.s workers just speaking as um a non-american someone who's watched the country from afar was always one of those areas of american exceptionalism that uh, in europe that we used to really admire you know this ability to just stop sticks and, and move um i think having such a vast country that uses, you know, so it's basically got the same government, the same currency, although each state has their own, you know, different peculiarities uh, for administration, but it was, a, it was able to move literally an entire continent away and still be in the same country. Um, and moving was kind of just part of the way of life, uh, U-Haul and things like that. That Those companies just don't really exist <laughs> in Europe, uh, designed around people kind of just stopping sticks and, and, and moving. So, uh, yeah. and, and I'll uh, give you, you know, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Andrew, I didn't mean you're up. I just wanted to throw some, give you some hard data on that. Uh, in 1986, 
1985, maybe it was 85. The census, according to the census, 20% of all Americans moved like during that year. They just moved their address, maybe wow. within the same state. I think that includes also international migrants as well. 20%. Last year was 8%. So you can see it's been cut in half. And that was, you know, maybe a little bit low because of the pandemic, but even, you know, 2019, 10%, 2018, 10%. So it's basically been, you know, cut in half or pretty close to that. So uh, we are definitely a less mobile society. Now, are there other reasons besides the cost of homes? Maybe, but I, I in my opinion, that's a, that's a big one. Yes. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's kind of move on to some of the other areas that we cover in, in this week's Econ Weekly. Um, we, we did cover a couple of companies uh, with their, their, I guess they're at the tail end of all the Q1 um, earnings reports that are coming out. Might be a good idea, maybe just to look back in terms of some of the highlights that we we got from uh, this quarter's uh, earnings. Which, which ones like, stood out to you, Jay? Yeah, sure. So there's, uh, yeah, so Q1 earnings season, uh, sorry, Q4 earnings season, uh, which was- Oh, sorry, yes, uh, the Q1 reporting, yes. Q1 reporting, yeah, yep. <laughs> from uh, where this is for October through December. And then some companies, you know, have different fiscal, you know, fiscal calendars and stuff. So it's not always exactly that. But for, for most companies, it's, you know, October to December. That's what they've been reporting over the last few weeks. And then soon we will start another, I mean, this quarter ends in a couple of days, the first quarter. So in another, you know, two or three weeks, we'll, uh, maybe three or four weeks, we'll start getting um, the, uh, you know, the, the first quarter reports. Uh, but, but to address your question about, you know, standouts in the fourth quarter, I'll say just overall, you know, the big themes, again, not to, you know, beat a dead horse here, but uh, company after company are, you know, talking about everything's in short supply uh, and inflation, obviously, you know, a very a big, um, you know, just, just on the minds of, of a lot of executives. Uh, and um, more recently, some of the, you know, companies that have reported within the last, you know, couple of weeks have been uh, talking a lot about, you know, what's, what's going on in Russia and how that's added an addition, additional layer of supply side headaches. Uh, so there's, um, you know, certainly all of that, you know, supply, uh, so those supply side dynamics. Um, on the demand side, though, most industries, most companies uh, have been reporting, you know, that, that things are still rather strong. I, I can't recall listening to one earnings call where an executive said, oh yeah, we're seeing a major slowdown. I think there was a few, you know, I think PayPal may have said that they're starting to see, um, you know, transactions slow a little bit. There may have been, you know, some signs, some signs of that, but, but most, most companies who actually are selling things, um, not the case at all. Even, you know, and you talk about standouts. Um, I listened to an, an airline industry conference. Uh, is it two weeks ago? Whenever it was, maybe it's last week. And the bullishness was, was, was very, uh, was palpable. I mean, you can, I mean, the, the airlines um, really, uh, even, even though fuel, price, fuel prices are way up, which is, that's often the number one cost. And even though there's some, you know, reluctance to travel abroad because of, you know, geopolitical tensions, airlines um, really expect uh, to have a, you know, an excellent spring and summer. 
Um, they just think that the pricing power is strong enough where they can overcome, uh, offset the cost of higher fuel. Uh, and even this is true, even, you know, international stuff, uh, maybe not Asia, that's mm. still really depressed, but people are booking trips to Europe. Um, they're absolutely booking trips to Latin America. Not that you would, you would know that Andrew, but yes, <laughs> Andrew is a re- recent, uh, passenger aboard a trip to South America, but, um, yeah, it's the demand is, is I'll give you just one, uh, Mexico Cancun is just like probably the hottest market on the planet right now. Uh, bookings are, or sorry, actual, um, you know, the number of seats are act- that airlines are actually scheduling down to Cancun is way above what they were even in 2019. So you get a sense of just how much pent up demand there is to get some sunshine. Wow. Yeah, that that's that's impressive. Yeah, I I I mean, it is obviously great to hear that for the airline industry. I mean, I mean, they were they were steering down the end of a gun barrel uh, two years ago, weren't they, when COVID yeah. started? Uh, but but they do have. I mean, coming back to the supply constraints, they have a little bit of an issue on how to get people to these destinations. Just, just today, I heard the Dallas Morning News. Their headline story was about two very large Dallas companies, um, American Airlines and Southwest, saying Uber very, very bullish in terms of demand and you know wanting to add in capacity, but they don't have the pilots. <laughs> so there we go uh, again. Guess, <laughs> labor shortage. <laughs> yeah. But the other the other issue is, I mean, it's interesting. Demand, yeah, it seems to be this constant chorus of, yeah, everybody very optimistic in terms of demand. But in the last couple of uh, episodes, we also spoke about the impact of things like, you know, rising prices, particularly the price of gas on, you know, retailers such as Walmart. So h- how were they kind of tempering the outlook? Are you, you're, you're asking about the airlines or about? No, uh, sorry. Well, Walmart and, and retailers. Uh, yeah. kind of. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, it's some of it is just, uh, the timing of when they reported. Uh, remember that the so the Ukraine invasion was that four weeks ago. I may have my timing off, yeah, but it's a, exactly it was a month yesterday. Yes, yeah, yeah, and that coincided with the real big run up in fuel prices, where you you know you had oil over a hundred. Um, a lot of companies, including Walmart, I believe, reported before that. So they you know prices well, to be sure, gas prices were already high, and they spoke about that, um, but. They haven't really said that much publicly since they've, you know, gone really, really high. But mm. I can tell you one example. So Dollar General, um, which is a huge chain of these, um, they tend to be in rural places, places that, you know, or even where people don't even have Walmarts to go to, or, you know, sometimes yeah. they do, but they're just, they're often more convenient for Walmart because they're, you know, they're, they're usually... There's a lot more of them, so there's you can get in and out quicker, and they're closer to your house. And um, so these uh, places said that um, a Dollar General said in their earnings call that when people when gas prices go up, people do stay closer to home. So mm-hmm. they you know they won't drive as far to Walmart. They'll maybe go to the Dollar General that's nearby. So in that specific in this specific circumstance, it's actually beneficial. Um, now, obviously, you know, the cost of fuel is translates into higher costs for everything because, you know, Dollar General is going to be paying more for 
things to get shipped into their stores and all that kind of stuff. So um, it's, it's not, you know, by any means they don't, they don't love it, but there are certain companies that, you know, could benefit from it. Mm, that's interesting. Yes. Um, yeah. And then just kind of a final postscript on, on the price of gas. So interesting this week that in California, they're actually looking at putting in um, some form of financial relief for right. uh, car owners. Um, so up to, up for, per each car, something like that, was it four hundred dollars a month, um, and up to a maximum of two cars per household um, to help offset the, well, the highest gas prices in the in the US, I believe. Um, right, and the big criticism of that is that you know it winds up uh, it's when you're subsidizing demand, you're not really helping the situation. It's only going to drive you know keep it. What you what you ideally want to do is get people to stop buying the you know the big SUVs and um, the gas guzzlers, uh, and, you know, hopefully even buy electric cars so that you can, you know, make a material impact on demand for oil, which will, you know, ultimately, yes, uh, yes. lower the price. Yeah. Particularly surprising with a state that has very good environmental credentials. I think it's, it's probably this intersection between politics and economics and environment um, right right now it's definitely you know a very politically controversial thing to to subsidize consumers with with, with like that now i'll give you a stat uh according to jd power and uh they did a uh, they do a forecast every month with lmc automotive um they according to their latest data uh trucks and suvs light trucks and suvs are on pace to account for 81% of all new vehicle sales in March. So 81%. So Americans love their, their big, big cars. And, and the, these SUVs, they are, you know, to be clear, they're more efficient than they, than they were years ago. But uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> not what you want to be driving when, when gas is $5 a gallon or whatever. Yeah, up, absolutely. Wow. Um... Yeah, I mean, at some point they will all be electric as well, which which kind of helps. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Another another bit of American exceptionalism. I think the the rest of the world, the auto market, is not seeing that kind of uh, trend. No, um, no, that's a, that's an American thing. <laughs> so, um, so there was uh, there was one company which I did want to just draw out that we we also covered this week, which is um, Booz Allen. Um, I'm, Many people may not have even heard of them, so maybe kind of explain kind of who they are. And they really had some interesting kind of uh, information in terms of their business. Um, I think it's kind of worth just spending a few few moments on 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 Boo- Booz Allen. Uh, that's Booz B O B O O Z or Z, um, not connected to alcohol in any way. <laughs> right. So Booz Allen Hamilton. Um, they are what you call a management consulting company, uh, like you know some of the more famous ones are McKinsey and uh, uh, Bain and BCG. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they so so Booz is is sort of in that group, but they are very specifically uh, targeting government contracts and and even more specifically military contracts from the Pentagon. So. We do have a chart in the uh, the new issue coming out of um, the largest defense contractors in in the United States, um, and this is our source for this is Defense News, their publication that that 
um, covers this sort of stuff. So the largest defense contractor in the United States is Lockheed Martin. They build a lot of the jets that the Air Force buys, for example. And they're in 2020, the most recent data that we have, Lockheed, Market, Lockheed Martin earned $63 billion uh, just from defense contracts. So it's just huge, huge money. And, and booze is, it's, you know, doesn't get that much, but but the uh, a large uh, portion, forty seven percent, in fact, of their uh, of their revenue comes from just defense consulting, essentially, and then another thirty percent. Yeah, it's it's, and then another thirty percent. So you're you know starting to get close to uh, close to hundred here, is from civilian federal agencies, um, and then a bunch you know a bunch of the rest is from intelligence agencies. So it's it's very much they depend essentially on on government money, uh, and what it kind of shows is that. To, to really understand the U.S. economy, there, there's a very large part of it involves an important sort of interdependence between the government sector and the private sector. And, you know, it's, it's not common to think about it this way. I mean, we tend to think of there's a private sector and there's a government sector, but there's really this like very close interaction. So you have a lot of, you know, private sectors specifically, I mean, in this case, it's management consulting, but specifically you know, a lot of these uh, aerospace manufacturers, Boeing is another one, I think, what were they number, Boeing was number three, Raytheon in Boston, they're number two. Um, these uh, sort of aerospace technology companies that build missiles and, and submarines and tanks, um, they're private sector companies, but they're very dependent on public money. Uh, and that's also very, very true for uh, the healthcare sector, for example. Um, and even, you know, you can think of infra a lot of infrastructure, you know, road building. Um, so, you know, just important to recognize that sort of interdependence there between public and private. Uh, I kind of made this separate case um, or, or sort of raised a separate point um, in this discussion about Booz Allen Hamilton, that uh, the federal government also provides a lot of direct funding to consumers and also direct credit. So loans, loan guarantees. Um, and that's very helpful to the private sector as well, even if it's not going directly to them. Mm -hmm. So you can think of, for example, the, the three big ones, healthcare, education, housing. Um, those are kind of the three big ones where the government is, is actually uh, a big uh, player on the demand side of the picture. So they're, you know, for example, um, you know, uh, providing loans for people to go to college. And that's going to benefit, you know, a private university. Uh, not directly, you know, the loans are going through, but it's, that, that's also, you know, an important part of the economy yes. that you need to recognize. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yes. I mean, uh, when people, yes, you're right. There's this gray area between purely public and purely private, um, you know, kind of, uh, and that's not, just unique to the US, but of course the US economy is so large, it makes this a an enormous industry. I right, it, right. And then on the defense side, it's it's unique in the sense that the US spending on defense is just so monstrously large. Um, unlike, in fact, it's kind of an interesting thing. You know, the US uh, Americans kind of think, well, the Europeans spend more on social welfare than than Americans do, um, which is true. But Europeans don't barely spend any money on defense, so it's so the in terms of like and and defense, in a sense, you can think about it like 
you know, public welfare in a way. I mean, that's, you know, sometimes it's used in a derogatory way. I don't mean that at all. But if you think about a lot of defense, uh, a lot of defense dollars are being pumped into places in the United States. Think of, you know, small rural communities with large military bases that, you know, these places would otherwise be very poor. They otherwise yeah, yeah, don't have, yeah. any, you know, yeah. It's, so, yes, I, I, we, we see it kind of like a new deal. So a way of a way of uh, helping those economists, and also you see it where um, you know you have earmarked um, in, in bills to kind of put money into certain uh, programs and projects that those defense companies, you know, where in certain states or um, areas, kind of always tend to be ones that need support you know so those projects will will get through because it helps maintain jobs in particular areas yeah, I, yeah absolutely i mean that's a big part of your job description if you're a congressperson is you know just bringing home as much defense money to your district yeah. as possible that's like a very big part of your, your job description um and it's not you know it's you can choose to be cynical about it it's uh you know these places uh you know look uh you know Southern California, I mean, even just big city like Los Angeles, I mean, they are, Los Angeles is what it is today in very large part because of defense spending. Same is true of Silicon Valley. Um, and, in you know, same is true of a rural area like, uh, you know, some small base in the South. Uh, so, so it's, you know, you can be cynical about it or you can say, hey, look, it's, you know, it's actually a net benefit. Yeah, I, I absolutely. It is. It is really a fascinating part of the uh, the, the the economic view. A um, little sensitive um, at, at times, but uh, but really, really important. Um, right, to, and it's kind of less controversial than direct. You know, well, I mean, obviously, there's you know, you you get the national security benefit out of it, but mm. you know, do you necessarily need all you know all of that spending? It's it's a lot of it is. You know, again, con Congress people just wanting to bring money back to their districts to support jobs, which again, you know, not saying that's bad or good or bad, um, but it is less. That tends to be less controversial than other forms of welfare spending. You know, giving direct checks to people or you know, subsidizing when you're spending on the military. That tends to be, you know, you're not going to get as much flack about that if you're yes. running for Congress. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, and uh, and in other countries, keeping the military happy is always a good thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we don't need to worry about that in the US, though. But, um, so, so Jay, I, I, um, I, we've covered a lot uh, today, um, and um, you know, obviously, the new, the new, new edition will be coming out um, over the weekend. Um, and I would just kind of just make a reference to the fact that we've we've chosen this week a, a really interesting kind of place to to, to focus on, which is Sitka, um, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, in in, in Alaska, um, and uh, you know, very very uh, very unique history, and therefore kind of uh, from an economic perspective, kind of what what that means for for that for that region. Um, it, but I'm just intrigued as to why you chose Sitka this uh, this week. Well, it, it just came to me that, uh, you know, with all this stuff uh, between Russia and Ukraine, it came to me that uh, the United States has somewhat of a Russian heritage. Uh, the uh, In the 19th century, 
the Russians had uh, settlements and, you know, people trading, uh, you know, tr uh, trading furs and, and, and other items along the West Coast of the United States, including California. But their capital was in Alaska, a place called Sitka. So Sitka was really the capital of Russia, Russian America, which is, you know, it's we, we forget about that. But uh, the Russians wound up selling Alaska to the Americans right after the American Civil War. Um, and we, you know, talk a little bit about the history of that. Uh, and today there's really, you know, there's there's not much Russian influence. They, they do have they, they rebuilt a Russian, uh, you know, Orthodox church uh, in town. So there's some, you know. As a tourist, you can see some of that. Mm -hmm. But uh, today, the, the economy is mostly based on tourism, fishing, and, you know, harking back to our previous discussion, uh, government, um, there's uh, the Coast Guard is big out there, um, the National Forest Service. So, uh, and of course, you know, healthcare, which is big everywhere. Um, that's yeah. a big employer. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's, there's nothing too Russian about it today, but, uh, but the history is interesting. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. Yeah, so definitely recommend people kind of just check, checking that out. And so, I, I just as we we wrap up, uh, Jay, I think one of the things just to to ask you is, uh, as we're coming up towards the the end of of March, is is there anything uh, that we should be looking out for over the next week? A lot, actually. It's going to be a super busy week for for new data. Because even though earnings season is now pretty much done, the we're going to get reports on both the labor market. So we're going to get the February jobs report. Uh, excuse me, the March jobs report. And then, sorry, wow, time's flying. Um, yeah. yeah, April first, I guess, is, is the day we're going to get the the March jobs report. Right. And then we're also going to get from the Commerce Department. Um, a new inflation number. So what's called the PC, the personal consumption expenditure index. So those, uh, you know, that's the Fed's job right there, <laughs> employment mm -hmm. and inflation. Yeah. So people will be watching that very closely. There's also incidentally an OPEC meeting. That's the big oil cartel. And they meet, uh, I don't know if they're still meeting virtually, but Vienna is their headquarters, Austria. Uh, that, that We'll see what they have to say. Um, OPEC has been working, Russia is not a member, but they've been kind of working closely together. So that could be uh, some, you know, provide some interesting insight to the oil market, depending on what they do. Uh, so yes, it will be a very busy week, I'm sure, accompanied by lots of stuff that will we could have no one could ever have expected. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's always surprises, um, but uh, we'll we'll have our seatbelts fastened, ready ready to go. Uh, absolutely. So it sounds like a busy week for you as well, uh, preparing for the following week's uh, edition of Econ Weekly, uh, Jay. So, you bet. Yep. <laughs> so, so just just before we go, um, I, I thank you for your time for the chat today. Do you want to just kind of leave out information about where people can uh, find Econ Weekly and, and find yourself? Yeah, you can catch me at uh, J J A Y at econweekly.biz, B I Z. Or you can go to our website, uh, which is econweekly.biz. And we have a, um, if you want to sign up, we have a uh, Substack edition as well. Um, and that's at uh, econweekly.substack.com. Okay, sounds good. Well, Jay, wishing you, uh, 
wishing you a good week and uh, we'll do this again in a week's time. Yep. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks to everyone listening. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.